If you have a connection to languages, this is the podcast for you. Whether you're a language learner, a language teacher, a language researcher, or someone who's just interested in languages. I'm Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta, and alongside Dr. Marie-José Bisson, we are the Language Scientists, and this is our podcast. We are senior lecturers in psychology at De Montfort University, and we conduct research into the area of language learning. Throughout this series, we hope to translate the science behind language learning into informative and useful practical advice. So whether you're a language learner, teacher, or researcher, sit back and enjoy. So today we have Dr. Anui Kukona on this podcast. Welcome, Anui. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. We're glad to have you. Now, both Marie and I have had the pleasure of working with you at De Montfort, and now you are a senior lecturer at University of Greenwich in psychology. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I moved okay. slightly south. <laughs> so, Anui, your background, you're obviously also an American, as people can tell by our similar accents here. Um, and you did your PhD in the U.S. at University of Connecticut. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And then you did postdoc at University of Dundee. Yes. So your background is just psychology, though, right? Did you do um, any other programs or was it like just that's your area, your focus that you live in? Yeah. So where I did my PhD, I think it was kind of um, structured as a kind of cognitive science um, approach, really, where uh, although I guess if you look at my like diploma, it does technically say psychology on it, um, but it did kind of there were requirements to do classes um, outside of psychology. So I did feel like I got to uh, do uh, things in linguistics, um, also in kind of discourse approaches that, yeah, gave kind of a wider exposure to um, the issues and questions about um, language that I think I'm still interested in, but that aren't just necessarily grounded in kind of a psychology perspective. I really like that about programs like that, because, I mean, we're all psychologists, right? But we we're not just in this little bubble. It's really interdisciplinary. I mean, because I was coming from linguistics into psych. Um, obviously, Louise, uh, Marie's got a very different background coming from teaching, like actual real-life teaching of a language. So that's what I just think is really cool about studying languages. You've got these different perspectives. It's almost like all different lights shining on the same weird thing in the forest, right, to figure out what it is. Yeah, it, it does seem to me that like human cognition, including language, is this really complicated thing? And, you know, you it's going to be, yeah, I, I feel like psychologists aren't going to just be able to figure it all out um, on their own. It, it does really take all of these different perspectives um, to really get to the heart of, yeah, how it works and what's going on. Um, and, yeah, and I suppose when, you know, when you're a PhD, you, you're, well, at least in the U.S., where I suppose PhDs are a little longer, there is a little more room to kind of explore and figure out what are the things that are interesting? And so, yeah, getting all those different perspectives, um, I really enjoyed. Yeah, and you kind of use all these different perspectives in your research. I mean, so I say, obviously, we're in psychology, and, and that's our focus and everything. But you're pointing out that we're in cognitive science, to be completely honest, um, and using linguistics perspectives. But like your, your, so what, if we go back to your language background, what languages do you speak? I mean, how did you yeah. get here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those really where people are like, oh, you're a linguist. You must speak a lot of languages. But actually, I only speak English. <laughs> so I'm, the, yeah, the worst case of just speaking a single language. You know, I always think language is one of these things that kind of sets humans apart 
And it's that kind of feature of language, which I've always thought was so fascinating that if you really want to like understand people, then language seems like a really good thing to focus on because it is this thing that, you know, sets us apart from other species and from that kind of a perspective. You know, I think even though we've actually worked together, I have not heard your viewpoint on that before. So that's really interesting. That's fun to actually hear about, <laughs> which is like the default assumption, isn't it? I studied all these different languages or I like learning languages, things like that. Yeah. yeah, no, <laughs> But yours I, is actually like, well, this is the difference that we have. Yeah. And I do think language is this kind of window onto cognition more broadly. Um, so yeah, I do have that kind of, I do see it as a kind of a tool at exploring the mind in a really broad sense. So then, obviously, I feel a little silly asking this because I know the answer of what you research, but our listeners don't necessarily know the answer of, of what you do. So when you science, when you do science, when you do your language research, what is it that you're typically studying? A lot of my work has been um, focused on language comprehension. So very often, psycholinguistics gets split up into either the part where you're producing language, so production, or you're listening to language and trying to make sense of it, so comprehension. Um, I've always focused on uh, the latter side of things, um, in part because I think you can design experiments that are kind of, I don't know, you have a lot more control, I think, in studying comprehension. Um, you have a lot more control. Yeah. With production, of course, you know, people say what they want because they want to, not because they're in a study that, you know, you're trying to understand something. Um, whereas with comprehension, you can control, you know, the kinds of things people are listening to. So, I, yeah, I am very practical, I will say. <laughs> so, I've always liked the comprehension side of things. <laughs> and I've always been really interested in, so, kind of grammar and syntax and language at the sentence level. So a lot of linguists have focused on the idea that um, syntax, if you think about language, is really setting us apart from other species. It's also really syntax which sets us apart um, because it enables us to kind of describe ideas, talk about things in ways not only that um, we might not have ever spoken about before, but that actually nobody in the existence of anything has also ever done before. So you can kind of describe things creatively. Um, so I've always been interested in, you know, it's called sentence processing, but it's this way of, 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 you know, how we can take a sentence that maybe we've never heard before and we can still understand it, we can still comprehend it. Um, and we can do it really rapidly. Um, we can do it even in really like noisy environments. And we can even do it despite the fact that a lot of language is ambiguous and it's not really that clear about you know what is being said um so despite all those challenges we can we can still understand what people are trying to communicate communicate with us and i've i've always thought that that's really fascinating and also important um and so yeah it seems like an issue really trying to get that i've always wanted to try to get to the bottom of and syntax, and, and you've, you've used the word grammar as well, it just refers to the way the sentence is structured, right? How else might you describe like syntax as, versus other parts of language? Yeah, so yeah, it, I suppose in the broadest sense, it's yeah, how you put the words together. And yeah, so you know, I always think that um, anybody who <laughs> feels like they actually speak a language, it's not sufficient just to know the words of a language. You've also got to know how to put them together. <laughs> um, <laughs> In order to, you know, ask where the toilet is. Coffee well, maybe you can now. find, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I suppose some things you can get, yeah. But it's limited, right? I mean, you could say like, coffee, please, please, coffee, <laughs> as opposed to 
Can I please have a... You know, I suppose if you just go, you know, you walk down the street, like, screaming toilet, like, that might, people might interpret that you need a toilet, but it also <laughs> might mean that you're calling them a toilet. So, yeah, it does seem like having multiple words and, and being able to put them together is, it's an important part of language, yeah. You study syntax, you study language comprehension. Um, how do you do this? I mean, do you just say, hey, uh, I'd like you to understand some sentences, folks? Um, so one of the, the methods I use um, is eye tracking. Um, so I do a lot of work where we have people listening to sentences um, that are kind of related to or they're about sort of visual stimuli that they're looking at. Um, so this is sometimes called the visual world paradigm for that reason. Um, and the idea is that we try to match up what they're looking at in a scene or in a picture uh, in relation to what they happen to be hearing about. Um, and the kind of, you know, perhaps obvious take home is that there's a, there's typically a very close um, coupling between the kinds of things you're hearing about and the kinds of things that people are then going to be looking at in a picture or in a scene. Um, so you can kind of use it as a tool as to how people are trying to understand what they're hearing because it then impacts on essentially what they're looking at um, if you kind of watch their eye movements. That's pretty cool. And I know I've only done very little eye tracking research, but I know it's, it feels complicated, but like it's at the heart of it, it's where you're looking where you're, you're attending to where you're processing that information, right? Yeah. So it, it kind of starts to bring in lots of different elements of cognition, right? Where you have language, but then you also have attention there. Um, and then it's also the perception of the, the um, scene that you're looking at. So I've always enjoyed it because it, it seems to me that yeah, you don't, I don't know. I, I've never been that interested in studying language in a vacuum. I always kind of enjoy it as part of this larger cognitive system of perception, attention, um, and all of these things kind of happening together and supporting each other. That's a really cool viewpoint. Now, over the last few years, it's been obviously, we, we've had this pandemic, right? <laughs> so our research has changed just a little bit. We've gone kind of from that typical lab setup that I think we all we're trained in where we have participants sign up online and they come into the lab and they go into the booth and they see stimuli on the computer and they do their study and then we analyze it later. But things have changed a bit and you've got a kind of a newer way of conducting research and that's something that we were going to discuss today. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, as you say, up until the pandemic, essentially all of my research was conducted in the lab. Um, we would bring people in, typically would be undergraduates. Um, and, uh, you know, we could sit them in front of an eye tracker, have them listen to language, look at some visual stimuli, and then see what it is that they're looking at. Um, but of course, in, I guess it was 2020, that, you know, we were essentially told that, and of course, it made sense that, you know, it wasn't safe to be having participants come into the lab anymore. Um, and I think, in some ways, that this was a really useful challenge um, to me personally as a scientist to say, well, if you don't have this lab environment, right, how is it that you can continue on and still be able to, you know, answer the kinds of questions that you're interested in? And I think developments that have been happening for a long time um, in other areas of uh, psychology, certainly, uh, are that they've been making much more use of the kind of innovation that I suppose has been impacting on all of our lives, which is um, the internet, right? So can you do um, research through the internet? 
So at first I was like, okay, now I can't do research, I guess. I don't know, I'll write up all that data that I have sitting in a computer somewhere. But eventually it became, you know, I, st I still have new questions I, I want to ask. And um, how is it that, you know, I could use the internet to try and answer the kinds of questions that I had previously been doing in the lab with things like eye tracking. And one of the solutions that we kind of settled on was to do mouse tracking. I think you can say that basically anyone on a computer is essentially using kind of a mouse cursor device. So it kind of meant that you no longer needed the lab per se, and you no longer needed specialized equipment like eye tracking. So mouse tracking was essentially something that everybody had on their computers. And so now it was just a matter of thinking up, well, how could you, you know, design an experiment that um, could somehow make use of the mouse as the thing that would be measured rather than something like um, eye movements. I think that's cool because essentially it's this idea that you're using your mouse to go in a specific direction, right? And that's supposed to be the way we're measuring kind of what would have been our, our eyes, right? Yeah, so it's basically, it's just, yeah, it's, it's instead of, because in some ways, Attention isn't necessarily equated with eye movements anyway, right? You, you can dissociate what you're attending to relative to what you're looking at. Um, so in the same way that we were using eye movements as a kind of a, an index of attention, um, although it was, you know, even there, it was just kind of a proxy for that. Um, now we're kind of switching to saying, all right, let's use where people's mouse cursors are um, as now their kind of index there. Uh, an indication of what it is that they're paying attention to. So when you're talking about doing an online research study, um, is this the same group of participants as we would get in the lab? I mean, is it just university undergraduates coming in and, and doing the same thing, but like from your, their computers at home? Yeah, so that's a good question. And in our initial studies, we, in some ways, we were skeptical as to whether or not this would even work that well. Um, I think when you do online studies, you lose a whole lot of control because you know you now no longer really know where the participants are and what's going on in the background. Um, so a lot of our initial studies were just with the very same participants that we would have used in the lab, and very often these were just our undergraduate uh, psychology students. Although I would say that um, for some time now it's been recognized that an issue with a lot of psychology research is that we've really focused in on a very small um, specialized group of individuals, and we very often kind of extrapolate from them, um, even though they don't really reflect the, I think, diversity of, you know, humans across uh, all of the world and across all of human diversity. Um, so I think, although ultimately we were forced into this by the pandemic, it is kind of an interesting solution to an, is an issue that psychology um, has been facing in, I suppose, recent decades, but also maybe across its entire history as to, you know, who is it that we're studying and how do we make sure that we're, we're really recruiting people that, you know, are, are diverse and that are reflective of the diversity that you see across, um, across human beings. Um, so we actually, we have transitioned now where we're recruiting a, uh, from much wider kind of populations and I will say one thing that I was kind of struck by, I was initially worried, although now I think I'm, I think it's a good thing, which was that I think across every study I had published up until the pandemic, the average age of uh, participants was something like their early 20s, because they really were um, the kind of prototypical undergraduate student. 
And our kind of first study that we did completely uh, outside the lab and then also not just recruiting from undergraduates, I think the average age had jumped up to like 40 something, maybe 45. And at first I was like, oh no, I don't, I, I don't know if this is like, am I studying the same thing? But, you know, I quickly realized that actually the issue was that the, the kind of samples that I was studying before were the problem. And it was now that, you know, these new samples that were, you know, basically sampling across the Internet was really, you know, something to be, I suppose, celebrating that, you know, a 20 year old isn't necessarily a, <laughs> a representative age of, of yeah, human beings. Um, so, yeah, so the, it, there has been this kind of shift where we're now able to recruit much more diverse participants, I think, than uh, certainly where we were before when we had to talk everybody into coming into the lab. So then this is actually an, kind of an ongoing area of concern in in research is that we do tend to have this this population of those people who come into university research labs that we can study and make sense of human cognition. Is that then that's kind of what you're saying here, right? Yeah. And, um, so a few years ago, actually, probably a decade ago now, some researchers came up with a, a really, I think, clever term, um, an acronym, which is WEIRD, so W-E-I-R-D, um, to kind of describe the typical participants in uh, a lot of psychological research. Um, so this was Western, uh, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic um, participants uh, in terms of you know, the countries of their origin, where they were kind of coming from. And I think they even did even further research on this. And one of the kind of statistics that's always stood out to me is, if you look at psychology research, it's something like two thirds of participants are drawn from the USA uh, in psychological research. Um, and the concern, of course, is that, you know, do we really have an understanding of people or do we perhaps have an understanding of Americans? <laughs> That's crazy. I actually did not know that statistic. Yeah. So I, I mean, I hope, I think this, so that this is published work from like the 2010s. I do wonder if it's gotten better. I suppose I, I hope that it has. I suppose online research is a, a potential yeah, solution, you know, going forward where we don't have to just have people coming into our labs in the U.S. kind of a thing. So then, essentially, you're able to study someone's kind of cognition through an internet connection. Would you say that's right? Especially doing this uh, mouse tracking research that you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit easier than, uh, say, trying to study cognition in like using ERP or AEG or something where you have the cap and you put it on someone's head and you're able to see how their brain works. It's definitely easier than trying to get someone to come into the lab and, and do research in the cube. But yeah, I, mean, I think this is a really cool, accessible method of research. Would you say this is something that someone can learn to do or, or do their research on fairly easily? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, obviously there are limitations and I, I don't necessarily know that this is a solution to uh, understanding maybe brain functionality. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it, you know, it is certainly a tool that is certainly as uh, like internet and computer um, software and things like that have gotten better. Um, I think the tools for being able to do sort of fine grained capturing of behavior and then also analysis of be behavior has, has certainly um, kind of increasing the possibilities um, that, you know, and the questions that we can um, address. So is there anything that you, in the research that you've done, like the 
mouse tracking research or any of your eye tra tracking research that you think is really just like a very cool, interesting piece of information that you were just surprised or it showed something that was just really awesome that you want to share with us? Yeah, so I suppose one finding that um, I've just recently submitted, um, so it's fresh in my head, is a lot of the work that I've been doing is looking at this idea of prediction. So in language, um, it seems to be the case that we're not just kind of waiting around to hear something uh, and then we kind of comprehend it, um, but rather we're also doing a lot of prediction of what we're going to hear before we actually do hear it. So one of the recent things that we did was to try and ask, can people really predict when it would be perhaps most useful, which is when potentially um, you're hearing language that's like really fast, um, so you don't necessarily have a lot of time to try and understand it. And so we did this kind of study in which we took some recordings and we doubled how fast they were. Uh, and we found that people could indeed kind of predict what they were going to be hearing next. Uh, and they could even do so when we tripled the speed. Um, so we thought it was really interesting that it does seem to be that language comprehension isn't just about understanding what you have heard, but also trying to predict um, maybe what you'll hear next. Oh, that's really cool. And, and that's something that you've just submitted? Yeah. So yeah, fingers crossed it'll be out eventually <laughs> in the literature. Yeah, so uh, our listeners can be on the lookout for that. It, it was a mouse tracking study. So, you know, basically people are hearing sentences and you'll hear verbs that are like, um, the man will ride something. Um, and essentially people start moving their mouse cursors over toward rideable things, like if there's a picture of a bicycle, um, before they actually hear that the man's riding a bicycle. So you get this kind of nice prediction and you can detect it um, through the internet um, with mouse cursor tracking. I think that's awesome. And then it kind of tells us like the main point of that we were kind of making today is that some really good high quality research can be done online to understand how people process language, whether it's their actually production is one way, but their comprehension of language. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm really excited about the possibilities um, going forward. And yeah, my, my default now is to try and think actually, could I, could I do a study online before maybe I have to figure out some other way of doing it in the lab? Yeah, for sure. I, I don't even think you would need to be in the lab for that. So that's, that's really cool, really accessible research. Well, cool. Is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to be able to walk away and say like, oh, this is something that I learned today. This is the coolest part. Any last bit of wisdom? Yeah, I guess, um, I suppose following on our discussion, it's when engaging with research, I suppose one thing that I encourage my students more and more, and it's something I do more and more, is to really try and think about who are the participants that are in the study and what are the implications of that follow from, you know, who it happens to be um, that's being studied. And yeah, you know, if, I now I think am much more of the kind of feeling that when I see that the average age of the participants are 20, I think, well, okay, is this a, a study about human cognition or is it a study about um, how maybe 20 year olds are, um, you know, doing the task that's as described in the study? That's a really great point. And I love that you made that as well, because I think of you first and foremost as kind of like a, a methodologist, to be honest, <laughs> thinking about research methods and who do we have here? What are we, what are we actually making sense of with the with the data and the research and the, resu the results and everything. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it, it does open up 
quite a lot of like opportunity to you know revisit classic old studies and look at who the participants are and then ask you know are how might this be different in uh, a different group of participants well thank you so much for joining us today anui and i will say to our listeners anui is actually our last interviewee uh, for the series so what a very cool note to end on And I'll just take a really quick minute to remind our listeners that if you haven't already, please take five minutes just to go to the show notes and click the link for our survey. It will tell us your thoughts so that Marie and I can plan our upcoming series based on what you would like to hear. So thank you for listening and thank you to the British Academy for funding our podcast. I'm Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta and you've been listening to the Language Scientist Podcast. Podcast.